often hear that calcium is essential for bone health. For people living with osteoporosis, calcium plays an even bigger role in their lives. But understanding the connection and figuring out how much you need and how often can be confusing. I'm your host, Krista Lamb, and today on Unbreakable, the OC podcast from Osteoporosis Canada, I'll be talking with Dr. Susan Whiting, who is a distinguished professor emeritus of nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Whiting's research looks at the dietary influences on bone health in children and adults, as well as the effectiveness and safety of calcium and vitamin D supplements. Welcome to the show, Dr. Whiting. Thank you, Krista. So first, let's talk about calcium and why it's so important to healthy bones. What does calcium do? Well, when you look at a bone, what you really see is the calcium, the mineral calcium with phosphate, and it makes up the shape and the strength of the bone. So it's, it's there. 99% of all our calcium in the body is, is in our bones and teeth. So we need to have a source of it in order to maintain that. And it can be really confusing to understand how much calcium we need in our diets and how much we should be getting. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, it's confusing for calcium because some of the nutrients we eat, we absorb all that we eat. We absorb all our calories, we absorb all our fat, our protein. But when it comes to calcium, we only absorb a certain percentage maybe about 30% for adults, and it goes up during growth and during pregnancy to maybe 80%. So it means that there's always this variable of, I need to eat more calcium than my body is going to absorb. And that you hear about percent absorption, and some actually manufacturers have made claims that their product is absorbed 100%, which is actually impossible. So over time, We've evolved to get calcium in when we need it, but to keep it out when we don't. So we have this variable absorption. So that's one sort of confusing point. Another is that some foods that we eat, uh, the calcium that's in them isn't very available. And so you could eat 1,000 milligrams of calcium from spinach and get very little and eat 1,000 calcium from dairy foods or some of the green vegetables and absorb or, or have most of it available for absorption. So we have all this background information, but what we do is we tell the public, well, here's your number, here's your 1200 milligrams or your 1000 milligrams. So then we start writing um, about the different foods and, and how much you need of this food and that food. And I, I could understand there could be a great deal of confusion. Yeah, and are Canadians getting the right amount? And how would we know? Well, my colleague at the university and I just actually published recently what Canadians are eating. There's a survey called the Canadian Community Health Survey that in 2004, actually for the first time, did a complete analysis of all the nutrients that we consume and the food sources of those nutrients. And then they repeated it in 2015. And when we look at the data, actually calcium intakes of Canadians has actually gone down and it wasn't that good to begin with. So people are dropping certain food groups like dairy and they're not picking up comparable sources. So actually, especially for older women, our calcium intake is not very good. And I think that's really, really interesting, especially what you said about dairy, because I think when we think about 
calcium and getting it through foods. Milk and dairy are the first things that come to mind, but are there other foods that are high in calcium? And can you talk a little bit about those? I agree that uh, in the past, we focused too much on dairy and many people thought that it was the only source of calcium, but we've almost gone the other way and we have a new food guide that actually doesn't even show much dairy in the pattern of food that Canadians are supposed to eat. So we have these swings between recommending different kinds of foods, but there are non-dairy food sources. What happens with them though is that a glass of milk or 250 mils gives you 300 milligrams of calcium. And the intake for, uh, let's say, older women is 1,200. So in theory, you could drink four glasses of milk a day and all your calcium needs are met. Now, that's not practical. But when I start talking about other food sources, like a cup of lentils, that gives you 50 milligrams, and a quarter cup of almonds gives you 75, and some green vegetables like kale will give you 150. Those foods contribute greatly, but you need to have a lot of different servings. And it's not a simple drink milk and you're going to meet all your calcium needs. So generally in a well-balanced, where you're eating healthy foods, whole grains, lots of green vegetables, but even things like oranges have some calcium in them. Fish with bones like canned salmon or sardines. Over time, over the day, you probably get close to what you need, but it, it, it is actually fairly difficult to meet your calcium needs without a dairy source. One of the things I wanted to ask about in relation to that is absorption of calcium. And so when we're eating foods that have calcium, is the reason that we might not be getting enough is because it's not being absorbed? Can you explain that? Right. So I started out saying that we, we don't expect all calcium to be absorbed. It's really the body wanting it in and wanting to keep it out. So an easy number to remember is 30% per adult. However, some foods, the same amount of calcium, but if you looked at, as I said, spinach, the reason that we don't absorb the calcium in it is it contains a mineral called, uh, or a compound called oxalic acid that binds calcium and prevents its absorption. Now, this is unusual. This is just spinach. But if you compared spinach with kale, all the calcium in kale is available to be absorbed while the calcium in spinach isn't. So there are certain foods that the calcium isn't absorbed as well. But we don't want people to focus on that. I would never tell someone don't eat spinach. It's just that what we've always said to people is eat a variety of foods. So the general rule is green leafy vegetables are a good source of calcium. They are well absorbed and just vary them. Or if you really wanted to be particular, I suppose you could say eat them all but spinach because they're, they're pretty much equally nutritious for other vitamins and minerals really wonderful to actually to learn about. And you talk in your research about phytate. And so what is that and what foods have them? Well, phytate is also like oxalic acid. It has the ability to bind calcium and it can theoretically bind calcium. The reason I wouldn't, in talking to Canadians, I would say forget phytate. It's, it's in soy, it's in whole grains, it's in some of the other pulses and, and legumes, but our intake of those is so low 
that we need those for fiber and for protein and they're, they're wonderful foods. So I would never tell an audience of Canadians, be careful of phytates. However, one of the places that I've taught and done research in is Ethiopia. And that's a country where actually their calcium intake is very low and their fibrous food intake is actually quite high. So what we have to do there is tell people to soak their beans and we have a, a much greater concern about phytate. So it's all in the context. So please don't worry about phytate. Don't stop eating high fiber foods because of calcium. Thank you. That's really important information for people to have. And what about the relationship between calcium and vitamin D? Is there anything we need to be considering about that? Well, to have good bones, you need both. And anyone who especially has osteoporosis and is taking some of the osteoporosis medications, it's it's very important that they also have calcium and, and vitamin D. And all of us need calcium and vitamin D our whole lives. But there's a point where these two nutrients don't work together. So they, they work together. Vitamin D promotes calcium absorption. And when you don't have enough vitamin D, that 30% that I said an adult should be able to absorb is not there. It could be as low as 10%. So you really have trouble absorbing calcium without um, having adequate vitamin D status. On the other hand, vitamin D has other roles in the body. And so it's not just about bone. It's about overall cellular health, actually. It's involved in the immune system and muscle strength. And so when we initially in the 80s, back in the 80s, when all this research on osteoporosis was beginning to happen, there was this feeling that calcium and vitamin D only had these rolled together and there there was nothing else. And now we realize that we need to have both, not just because we want to absorb calcium, but we, the bone is a living tissue and we, there's other roles that the vitamin D can play. So we also have this misconception that they're always present together. And that's because out of necessity, Health Canada fortified milk with vitamin D many decades ago. And that's because milk was a good food for children and they were very concerned about um, bone health in children. It was um, rickets actually were occurring in Canada. And so people kind of had this feeling that wherever there was calcium, there was vitamin D. But if you look at yogurt, for example, there's, there's no vitamin D in many of the brands. And if you look at cheese, there's no vitamin D. So there's a misconception that calcium-containing foods always have vitamin D with them. I can understand there are some degree of confusion that people might have So they work together, but they also have separate roles in other parts of the body. And one of the things you said that I found really interesting was about how things have changed so much since the 1980s when this research was first being done. And can you tell me a little bit about some of the misconceptions and things that we know now that we might not have known about the role of calcium in our food? Well, it's interesting you should ask me that because I started my research around that time. And so I saw the development of what people were thinking and how it has changed. And in the beginning, there was a focus primarily on calcium. And people, including myself, unfortunately, thought, well, vitamin D is just up there in the sky. We, we make it in our skin. And there really wasn't a clear recommendation for a dietary source of vitamin D. 
But what was happening in many of the experiments to show that calcium was important for bone is that many of the subjects were actually vitamin D deficient. And so the amount of calcium that was being given was actually higher than you need when you have sufficient vitamin D. And that's because your absorption was so poor that you just needed to have more and more calcium all the time in order to maintain your bones. So our early recommendations for calcium actually overestimated the amount we needed. And one of the early guidelines for Osteoporosis Canada had calcium at 1,500 milligrams. And since that time, we've realized that if you keep your vitamin D status adequate, that you actually don't need 1,500, you're, you're going to do fine at 1,200. And so that is one of the big changes that happened. The other change was that no one thought too much calcium was a problem. And so many of the studies of women around the world were taking fairly well-nourished women, for example, in New Zealand or Canada, who were already consuming dairy products and probably had about 1,000 milligrams in their diet. And these women were given another thousand as a supplement. And it all kind of blew up with the Women's Health Initiative as they found that these women, uh, first of all, they could hardly prove that calcium was, was important because the controls were already getting enough. And so adding a thousand more wasn't helping. And then secondly, some of the women developed kidney stones. So we now have an upper level to prevent people from overdoing their calcium intake. So the upper level is around uh, 2,000. So we don't want people to actually think more is better. And that's definitely true of calcium. That's really amazing because I think it just shows how we are always learning and the importance of research in that progression. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to ask, what else do you think is important for people to know about calcium and bone health? Is there anything that we've missed today? Well, I think it's difficult to go into the grocery store and start looking for foods that you think might give you calcium. Packaged foods have labels, and um, calcium, fortunately, is one of the nutrients that appears on all of the food labels. It's undergoing a, a change. Our food labels are not going to look different, maybe, to most people. I can tell the difference between an old label and a new label, but the amount of calcium that's in the food never used to be on a label. It was always a percentage. And for most people, it was a percentage of some unknown number. The new labels will actually give you the milligrams and that will allow a person to compare. For example, um, I was talking about dairy, but we, we know that there are now plant-based beverages out there that compete with dairy. There's almond milk and rice milk and oat milk and things like that. They probably shouldn't be called milk, but that's what we refer to them as. And they're used like milk on cereals and things. Well, all of them are, are fortified. They don't naturally have calcium in them. But some of them aren't fortified. So it's just a, one um, caution for people is to make sure that they're buying a fortified product, that this is what they want for themselves or their children. And in order to do that, you pretty much have to look at the label. So just a bit of caution there. But if there's other foods that you're interested in, you can look at the label and see if there's, there's about 50 milligrams of calcium. That's a good start. I mean, you're not going to eat 20 foods of that, such a low amount, but I think every little bit helps. So that's one thing to be aware of. 
And I guess the other thing is that we are concerned about calcium supplements. One of the ways a person can use a calcium supplement isn't to get all their calcium, but to get the amount of calcium they need that they're not getting from food. So if you go to the osteoporosis website, you'll find a calcium calculator, and you can go in and pick the foods that you normally eat, and it will calculate for you how much you're getting in a day. And let's say you're getting 800 milligrams and you need 1,200. Well, you can uh, get calcium supplements, just the amount that will fill that in. So you don't want to take 1,000 milligrams of calcium if you only need 400. And probably the best way there is to buy mini supplements now, 200 milligrams. Because another thing you don't want to do with calcium is have it all at once. You want to have it spread out over the day. So you're just looking to make sure you get enough calcium, not too much. Food, of course, is a great way to do it, but you're not always necessarily going to like or want to have all the calcium foods. And so a supplement can just come in and just fill the gaps that you might need. Well, that is really, really important advice. And I so appreciate you sharing all of this today, Dr. Whiting. I know I learned a lot and I hope everyone listening did too. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Krista, for asking. I'm Krista Lamb, and you've been listening to Unbreakable, the OC podcast from Osteoporosis Canada. Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Susan Whiting about calcium and why it's so important for bone health and for managing osteoporosis. If you'd like more information on osteoporosis, visit our website at osteoporosis.ca. If you have questions or comments about this topic or about our podcast, reach out to us on our website or via social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoying the show? Hit subscribe in the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening.